Oh my gosh. Hello. Is this video recorded? I don't know. It's not, but we're going to take a screenshot. Is that okay? Okay. Yes. I have, that's my uh, incredible pink feather boa. <laughs> Do you want to put it on? Oh, sure. <laughs> Why nice. not? But now I need something fun. Should I get a wig or? Ooh, wigs are great. Okay. I'll be back. Okay. What do we think? That's astounding. <laughs> for for the listeners, uh, Lisa's wearing this amazing, like, soft violet with hints of blue wig. <laughs> it's great. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Shiny Ebby People. I'm Lisa Bodner. If you would like to support this one-woman production, go to my Patreon at patreon.com slash shinyepipeople. You can also follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at shinyepipeople, where I post additional content, lots of good pictures and updates on what is coming your way. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show in your podcast app if possible. That actually really helps my show get more visibility. Also, just a quick note, the number of downloads and listens to the show have been really high, and that makes me really happy that you are listening and coming back for more each week. However, what I'm really missing is the engagement that was so present earlier in the show's history. And every time you retweet the show or reply with your own stories of bottle-feeding calves or agreeing that baby carrots are inferior to regular carrots or with your own horror stories of bad fashion as an adolescent, it really lifts me up. When I put out shows and don't get a lot of feedback, it's hard to be motivated to keep going. Sometimes it feels like you're giving a lecture in a class to like 500 people that you spent 20 plus hours and all of your creative energy preparing for, and everybody in the audience just stares blankly at you. And you sort of leave the lecture hall where you're like, well, I have no idea if anyone learned anything or anyone like that. I'm doing this show not just to put content out into the world that 1,200 people listen to every week, but to engage with you. It's actually my favorite part of doing this. So please email me, shinyepipeople at gmail.com, or tweet at the show, or share the show on your Instagram stories, or send me a DM. It really matters a lot. Thank you so much. Today, you will hear my conversation with Fausto Bustos. Fausto is currently an ORISE Data Science Fellow at the NIH's National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. There, he provides data analytic expertise, computational and statistical assistance, and substantive scientific knowledge to research projects at the Institute. Fausto is also an infectious disease epidemiologist and got his PhD in epi at the University of California at Berkeley in 2020. After getting a Master of Arts in Biostats at Berkeley and a Master of Science in Epi at Harvard, Fausto's story is one of resilience, living in poverty on the U.S. southern border until he went to college. He talks about how he navigates academic spaces that were not built for folks with his background and his close relationship with his mom. Fausto is a self proclaimed nerd and knows more about reality TV shows than any epidemiologist I've ever met. I hope you enjoyed this chat. What do you have? 
the finest three and a half buck Chuck Chardonnay Trader Joe's offers. <laughs> it's a great year, I hear. Vintage is it? 2017 or whatever. It's a fabulous year. Cheers. Cheers. This has already set the tone. <laughs> I knew that there were going to be shenanigans. Yes. But we've never met in real life. Which is a shame. <laughs> it is a shame. It needs to change. And we've only like exchanged some DMs on Twitter. Mm-hmm. My perception of you via Twitter. Oh God, was that- I'm, 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 I, I feel like I should be in a bunker for what's about to happen. <laughs> no, 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 no. I knew that you were going to be, that you were very smart. I like how honest you are on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Your goofiness is super fun to me. Well, thank you. All of these things screamed like, get this man on your show, Lisa. <laughs> And so while I knew that your putting on a pink feather boa would be within the realm of possibilities, (laughs) (laughs) I didn't actually realize what a compelling life story you have. A lot of hard life things and how your kind of persona doesn't really reflect that as far as I can tell. I mean, I try very hard to be real and honest. But that's not to say that my life has not been absolutely bonkers, especially the first half. I was born in uh, San Diego, but lived across the border in Tijuana. I would crisscross the border every day, twice a day for 14 years to go to elementary and high school in San Diego. Oh, wow. And I thought that was absolutely normal because every I did it. Everybody around me did it. 30 to 40% of my elementary and high school did it. But of course, it absolutely wasn't normal to grow up in two cultures and two languages. And so as that as the backdrop of the things that need to get done every day, just to make education happen, for that to sort of always be intersecting with my personal life, my father's infidelity and always being poor and the lights would go out half the time because, you know, I just I grew up in a city where you could not always depend on there being electricity or you could not always depend on there being running water. It would, it would just go out and there's nothing you can do about it. And the other half of the time, we just didn't have the money to pay all the bills. So there would, like, there would be times when I would be sleeping in, in the family car and we would be right outside of my high school. That wow. would just save us gas. It's a crazy way to go to high school as soon as the doors open and go to the gym and take a quick shower so that I could look refreshed and ready to go for school and be mm-hmm. high achieving. It didn't really hit me how abnormal my life was until I got to college. Mm-hmm. And people started asking, well, where are you from? How do you do? And then hearing about all these adventures that a lot of my colleagues had, and they would just like go to Egypt for a family vacation or go over here, do over there. And I kept thinking, wow, none of that has a parallel in my life. I'm like struggling to make it. It has always felt, at least up to that point, that I had to do 10 times as much just to be on par, but I wouldn't want to let that show. And through the arc of trauma and just surviving and and having the grit, I've surprised myself that I could still be silly and I could still Mm -hmm. be like capable of love both to others and myself Mm -hmm. and that I didn't lose that because I could very easily see a pathway where I took a different direction. Somehow through it all, I... I was able to like really find a sanctuary in education Hmm. and it was an escape for me. Um, And that's really how I, I think managed to make it all work. 
given that you were a kid that was crossing the southern border mm-hmm. twice a day, every day, mm-hmm. you know, what people are calling like the crisis on our southern border right now. Yeah. And with family separation, mm-hmm. would you share, and it's okay if you don't want to, but like, would you share how that impacts you given that you were a kid crossing back and forth? When I cross into Mexico or into the U.S., I don't view that as entering a new nation because I've done that over 5,000 times just to go to school. So for mm-hmm. me, it's it's just going to a different place where that has different rules. And crossing the border in and of itself is just, it's so hard to explain what that process is like to somebody who hasn't done it and done it on such a consistent basis. Because part of it is just the border politics. Part of it is you're just sitting there for upwards of eight hours just waiting to cross. Honestly, all the the drug trade that happens is Mm -hmm. I have been in various shootouts at the border. As a little kid. As a little kid, yeah. I've seen like horrific things that have happened. There was one time when on the American side, the the entire structure collapsed and my, my aunt was almost buried under oh my a gosh. bunch of rubble because the whole building just fell down. So that's, to me, that's just like context. Anytime I think about border politics, family separations, anything like that. But to me, it's very real. It feels always very personal. Mm. Um, and so even when COVID happened, and the border was shut down for 18 months. Hmm. To me, I always thought that's that's so insane because like to me, that would essentially have been like, you can't go to school that's for right. 18 months. And the choice isn't up to you. You just have to wait until it all sizzles out. So hmm. I'm always worried about the border. I mean, half my family's on one side, half my family's on the other side. And everybody's just crossing to, to see each other, to say hello. So, and when life is made easier for people who are trying to cross for one reason or another, as somebody who's done that thousands of times, that makes me happy. And that that to me is like, that's great because I would like to live in a universe where there are no borders. But yeah. when hardship is made even harder, especially when that hardship is, in my view, unnecessary mm. or to a certain degree, uh, vengeful or motivated by, um, motivated from a position of just trying to hurt others. Yeah, that I have a very visceral reaction to that. So did you not get to see your family during all mm-hmm. of COVID? Yeah. So I didn't see my mom for a little over two years. Wow. And I felt particularly sad because my graduation happened during COVID. And oh, my yeah. mom had been waiting for this one moment. The way she tells the story, mm-hmm. she'd been waiting to see me graduate. And not just like a minor graduation, like sure. the final graduation, right? As sad as I was not to see her, I was more sad for her because though I am not a mother, I, I have somewhat of a grasp of what this moment meant to her and that COVID deprived her of. Yeah. So the, <laughs> I'm good crying now. Um, so the first time that I was able to see her, I asked a friend for, for her graduation toga and I had the funky hat and the, the stole. And so mm-hmm. I get home, I see her. Um, and then I excuse myself. I tell her like, oh, I'm just going to put my my stuff away. Um, so I run up to my room and I put on all the, the graduation gear and I tell my brother to hit record. <laughs> and then I had on my phone, I started playing the graduation song, um, whatever it's called. And then I, I walked down the, the stairs and she was in the kitchen just, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> ah, crying. She was, she was like prepping food for us. 
yeah. and I just turned the corner and I was oh. <laughs> there in all my graduation mm. attire. And I didn't need to say anything. I didn't need to to do anything. We just had a moment yeah. where it was such a celebration for the two of us. Yeah. That not just for my educational achievements, but that we did it. We were able to get through the poverty and the trauma and domestic abuse and divorce and oh my God, so many things. And it was, and it all worked out in the end. Mm -hmm. So to be able to show her that I did it. Yeah. I pride myself on being, on giving good gifts. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I will ever give somebody a better gift than that moment. You had a ton of responsibility in terms of bringing in income to your mm -hmm. house when you were really young. Mm -hmm. How did that play out for you, given that you were also trying to get your own education and be a kid? It meant that I didn't get to be a kid. Mm -hmm. I had to lop off that side of myself because I am I love personality tests, and I know I'm not the first guest to, to say that. Um, <laughs> but Whitney? I, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I love Whitney Robinson's uh, interview with you. Thank you. She mentioned that she loves personality tests and I do too. And when I've taken them, they've always said the same thing, that I'm very practical and I'm very analytic in terms of how did that manifest when I was a, a kid, but I'm the one that had to be the breadwinner. Uh, I yeah. basically decided, you know what? I don't need to go to the parties. I don't need to go to the after school events. I don't need to go to the football games. I don't need to go to the movies. I don't need to go to prom it meant realizing that there's a lot of fluff that would be nice, but practically I need to be working as much as I can mm. to, you know, it's not like I had a great job. I was, I was uh, doing minimum wage work in California as a bagger at a grocery store. It was mm -hmm. not glamorous in the slightest, but that's the job that I had. And so I had to do as much of that as I could to make the finances work out. Your parents got divorced when you were young. It sounds like it was a traumatic divorce, not yeah. the most amicable ever. That would um, be a fair assessment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> was it, uh, how old were you? Seven-ish, I think, when everything started. I mean, I remember the moment when, as like a seven or eight-year-old, internally, when I decided this man is no longer worth being a dad. He is a father. There's a biological relationship. There will be no mm. emotional relationship. There will be no personal relationship. He is a man. He is some dude. I don't need anything more from him. Uh, that's not a memory I cherish, Sure, but it's very much a defining one for me because it definitely forced me to grow up, forced me to see the world in a different way. I mean, I was seven. It's not like I could shoulder a lot of responsibilities, but it was just I feel like it was a dawning of my consciousness in a different way. That's just like, oh, suddenly the world is different mm -hmm. and I need to adapt and I need to be more adult. Gosh, that's so mm -hmm. much pressure and responsibility. Mm -hmm. That's a mm -hmm. lot for a little one. Yep. And there's realistically, there's not much that I can do as soon as I was 16 and I could work, even though I very much didn't want to. I knew that it doesn't matter what I want because this is what I have to do. 
because money doesn't grow out of trees. It's not going to pop out of nowhere. This is going to suck and it's going to suck for a very long time. Mm. But there are, there's always something in my power, but I'm going to do what I can to make life better for my family. So you missed out on a lot of years of just being a kid. Mm -hmm. Do you get to be a kid now? I think so. The liveliness and being a little carefree, um, maybe being, you know, irresponsible sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I definitely think on the outside, depending on how people know me, they either view me as like super serious, you know, academic, nose in a book all the time, or they know me as like a super silly just like carefree, whatever. I really do feel that those are my like inherent binaries in my life. I definitely try to overcompensate academically because like I said, it's, it was my escape. I don't think I overcompensate socially. I think I just am this like social being and I like going out and about and I like meeting new people and I love putting on boas for an interview <laughs> that doesn't have a video component because why not, right? Um, uh-huh. But I, I absolutely love that I'm just in a position in my life where I can be silly. One of the things that being forced to grow up very quickly meant for me is that I became a very careful observer of human behavior. Mm. And I paid a lot of attention to a lot of the social cues and that what, how that's relevant. And you relevant had to, is, right? You I had, had to. to. It was sur- to survive as a little mm-hmm. kid. Yeah. But that also made me very crystal clear on what exactly is the line that I can get up to this far, but no further, that I can not cross it. So for example, so I went to the conference of the American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, which that year was in uh, New Orleans. And I was giving a talk, I think on the second or the third day of the conference. And that day it happened to be Halloween. So I was like, hmm, I think I can make this work. <laughs> so I went to my advisor and I said, hey, uh, what, do you, what, you know, what are your thoughts on me showing up to the conference, mind you, on Halloween? Uh, in costume in and New she, Orleans, like, yeah, right, right. I was you like, were being set up to wear mm-hmm. a costume for your time. I really was. So, but you were a student, yes. I was, a, yeah, I was you a were a PhD student. student, yeah, yes, okay. And I was, I was presenting on one of my, one of my papers on Zika. I knew that I had to be very careful with the way that I asked this because it's like it is a crazy thing to ask your advisor. Uh-huh. to do this very professional thing in a very professional setting in a very yes. unprofessional way. I asked my advisor and she was like, yeah, totally. I don't mind. Oh, nice. Like, okay. Great. Yeah. So I show up to the conference dressed as Goku, right? The lead character from drag- from the Dragon Ball Z TV show. Okay. I don't know who that is. That's okay. Oh, I'll send, I'll send you a picture. But, okay. <laughs> um, but I thought there will be other people at the conference, surely, who are also in costume <laughs> oh. on Halloween. Oh, I get there. A bunch of like sticks in the mud academics. No, no. Out of this conference, it probably had 10,000 ish people. There were maybe three others who were in costume (laughs) and they were always several ballrooms away. So when I saw one, we we were like, oh, my God, you did. You did the same thing I did. And we would wave to each other, have no idea who she was or he was just like, I see you. Right. I see what you did and I'm all here for it, right? Okay. So but it, did they have a talk? That's the other thing. I don't know. They probably I, were just sitting probably in the not. audience. They're probably right. just right, right, audience members. Okay, so Goku is uh he's this extraterrestrial fighter. Um, and he wears a bright orange jumpsuit and he has black spiky hair. Jumpsuit. I'm in the front row 
and I'm waiting to be called on. Wait, tell me, was this orange jumpsuit like, was it like fitted and like? No, it's very loose because you have to, you have to be like in fighting, (laughs) in fighting mode. But do you think, do you think people knew you were in costume? Oh, okay. There's a very big (laughs) age difference there in terms of who knew what was about to happen. Okay. Uh, And that I didn't realize that, but so they call my name. I start to ascend this little ladder to get to the podium. I am halfway to the podium. I have not gotten there yet. And I'm already getting a standing ovation. People are yelling. People are screaming. Oh my gosh. And I quickly turn around to see who's screaming, who's yelling. Yeah. Because I thought it was my friends who were there and it was them, but it was also other people. But I noticed it's just the young people who (laughs) knew, who grew up with the show, who know what's about to go down who cannot believe like this is actually happening. So I get up there, I make a big stink out of pulling something out of my back pocket. <laughs> it's this gigantic black wig, very spiky hair. And so I fit it on and I do the fitting. And again, the young people are like losing their shit. They're like, cannot believe this is happening. So I get up to the podium and I realize uh-huh. I'm already here. I've pushed it 99% of the way. Why the Why fuck not? not? Why the fuck not go 100 100- <laughs> thousand percent yes because i think i can get away with this and i think it i don't think i will suffer any professional consequences well and you were getting like egged on by people right by the crowd the crowd was loving it yeah so i said hi my name is kakarot and i'm from the planet vegeta (laughs) here on earth my best friends bulba and krillin call me call me fasto and actually i'm here to present on zika But I decided, you know, like, why not give this in character? How would Goku introduce himself? So, and again, the the young people in the crowd went wild. The older individuals had no idea what was happening. They were confused. Uh, But did they like it? Did they have, like, grins on their faces? And They were just, I think they were just like, what's happening? I don't understand what's happening. Yeah, Because after the fact, uh, I was meeting, greeting some people still in my costume. And this older gentleman came up to me. Um, and he shook my hand and he said, that was a great talk on Zika, blah, blah, blah. You know, I can't believe you did that. It takes a lot of nerve to get up there as the orange Teletubby. <laughs> no. And also, I didn't have the there heart. there is no orange Teletubby. Exactly. I didn't, I didn't have the heart. I was like, sir, you are so far away from generationally what just transpired. Yes. But I wasn't going to get into it. I was just like, thank you. Yes, yeah. sure. Why not? Let's go mm-hmm. with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, I love it. You work in academia, in Mm -hmm. which systems and institutions are not set up for people who grew up poor. Correct. Very much so. How do you navigate those spaces now? I don't know how best to answer that other than to say a very realized form of imposter syndrome, Mm. because the systems are very much not set up to make sure that people like me thrive. There's just expectations that you can make it work on a graduate student stipend that's, you know, basically nothing. Um, and you just have to like make do. So for me, especially as somebody who did grow up poor, but who went through different universities, all of which had very wealthy people and just like every single building just felt like a palace to me, given what I had. Mm-hmm. I've just had to always pretend that I fit in. Anytime somebody said something, the answer was always yes. Yes, yes, yes. Did you know this? Yes, of course. Did you know that? Yes, of course. Socially, that meant 
just approaching everything with zeal and vigor and pizzazz as if it wasn't my very first time encountering this very unusual situation. Hmm. And I just had to work with it. So I think that has given me a very go with the flow kind of attitude. I don't know that that's an inherent part of me, but I've had to fake that so often and in so many different contexts that it feels very natural to me now, even now in different circumstances to just say, yes, of course. Even though on the inside, I'm like, I, I don't know what that word is. I don't know what <laughs> uh -huh. I've just been invited to. I don't mm -hmm. know what, I don't even know what's happening, but I'm just going to say, yes, I'm going to trust my common sense. I'm going to trust that everything else I can figure out through context clues or whatever, or just observing human nature. But I almost always feel out of my element. Even if it's not about academics, mm -hmm. there is a level of confidence that you have in order to talk about vulnerable things or in order to say goofy, silly things yes. that is on a site where your colleagues and your supervisors could be seeing what you're saying, oh, right? So, and, I, and I know that they are. I mean, I got my current job through Twitter. Mm. Uh, I know some of my supervisors are there and that's that's perfectly fine with me. I think I have imposter syndromed myself into having much more confidence than I would normally. <laughs> Say and more. Made, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and I just, I feel like I've faked my way into a level of self-confidence that I wouldn't have normally. And I am perfectly okay being zany and I'm perfectly okay letting literally thousands of people know that I'm on my eighth rejection for a study that I think is yeah. like the neatest, greatest, most interesting thing I've ever done. And eight different editors are like, nope, that's garbage. I hate mm -hmm. that. It's so obvious. It's so simple. It's too mm -hmm. difficult. I don't know what that is. I know exactly what it is. And it's like worthless. <laughs> I'm, I am okay. My self-esteem is just like not tied. I do think that's one thing I've learned. My self-esteem is not tied to others' impression of me. And it's made me let go of that as something that would hold me back. Um, mm. Somehow for me, faking it till you make it really worked mm -hmm. out. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and I just, I just generally am not embarrassed. I think I have just completely let go of that emotion as a feeling, as something that would ordinarily hinder myself. Uh, and the nice thing is it also, it feels very liberating to, to understand as soon as I know what the line is, it's like, okay, I can go exactly up until this point. Yeah. As long as there are no professional or social consequences, like I'm perfectly okay. Letting the universe know mm -hmm. that like th I'm going to do a hundred tweets on the bachelor. Why not? Let's do it. <laughs> In like an hour and a half, here's my hundred tweet mm -hmm. response to everything that I'm seeing on the show. Uh -huh. That's pure trash TV. Like, let's do it. After the whole Goku incident. Yeah. And then I, and some, because somebody asked me very point blankly, don't you, don't you understand that you're in a room full of professionals that are here for Zika and you're giving a Zika talk and they could very well hire you. Right. And this could be bad for you. I didn't have the answer on the tip of my tongue, but it just rolled off of me saying, if they're the kind of bosses that would never let me do something like this, if they would be yeah. so unbelievably opposed to me showcasing just a tiny little shard of my personality <laughs> at a professional setting, and I could still give a great talk, I can still talk science, right? That's right. The epidemiologist in me is not going anywhere, then I don't know that I would want to work with that person. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that that person and I would, would mesh well in a personal way that you need in order to have like a good 
employee employer relationship. Mm-hmm. So it, I definitely think it's helped me uh, prof- professionally as well as personally. I have to take off my wig because my head is starting to hurt. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) The the cap is like too tight. Hold on. (laughs) Okay. What gets you fired up? What gets me fired up? Um, I get very animated when I'm meeting new people. Mm. I love the feeling that this is, it feels like this is a blank canvas and I need Mm. to understand who this person is, what they like, what they don't like. So I love meeting new people. And that's not like fired up in the like rah rah sense, but it's just like to me internally, it feels so wonderful. And I, it almost feels like I'm a detective. I have to suss out like, who are they? What do they like? How, what are our connections? Cause there's always something there's Mm -hmm. always, or a someone or that also really animates me on first dates. I get myself pumped up. I'm like, let's do this. Let's like meet this person. Really? What is it like dating in DC? Uh, so far, the dating scene has treated me very well, oh. even though I've definitely been on first dates that just like didn't go anywhere and nothing's happening. Yeah. It's I will never see you again. And like, I'm perfectly OK with that. Yeah. But compared to, say, San Francisco, where where I was for many, many years, D.C. feels like a feels like a breath of fresh air. Uh, somehow, even though half really? of the people are lobbyists right. or on the hill and they have the most boring jobs. Yeah. It just, it feels like there's less of like a tech bro uh, (laughs) attitude. It's funny. I went to DC and I turned on the apps and I was like, Mm -hmm. why the fuck not? Like, (laughs) I'll see what's out there. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? It was a completely different vibe. Like the men there, they were like putting on a performance. It felt a lot like. How do, how do you get to like figure out who somebody is when in DC, at least the straight men all mm-hmm. felt like they were just kind of putting on a show? Well, I can't speak for straight men being not one of them, <laughs> but at least in the gay community, I have just not encountered people who are trying to be fake because I've certainly encountered those people before that are yeah. just, they're putting on a persona. Fausto, what is a hill you're willing to die on? I love prunes. I should say I don't have any like urinary problems. My GI system is fully intact, but prunes are the most delicious things I've ever tasted. Yeah. I don't understand what I, why I am constantly ridiculed by my peers for loving prunes. I forget which company, I think it might've been Dole, came out with orange flavored prunes. They are the most incredible thing I've ever They're had. They're so Good. Then they have like the lemon scented yes. or flavored. Pr- I don't. I don't even know what garbage they're making. I don't want to know how they're made. Yeah, they're incredible. More people should be in, into prunes. They should have prune parties. I just. What does like, that mean? I don't even know. I just want it. Okay. There's there's a famous. Okay, I'm going to be very nerdy here. A famous episode okay. of Star Trek: The Next Generation. It's called Yesterday's Enterprise. It's a time travel story. In the opening five minutes, the character Worf, who's a Klingon, who's meant to be like sturdy and just like rough and, you know, whatever. Okay. He's introduced to prune juice by Guinan, who's played by the wonderful Whoopi Goldberg. And the character of Worf loves prune juice. And then it kind of sort of becomes a running gag afterward. But when I saw that, I was like, first of all, I love Star Trek. I love Whoopi Goldberg. I love everything that's about to happen with this time travel story. 
for right. also prune juice. I have never even heard of it. I could not conceive of prune juice as a thing. I didn't know it existed. But anytime prunes happen on television, I am there. I will watch the entire episode. I just think prunes are so amazing. <laughs> and I don't understand why everybody makes fun of prunes and thinks they are just there for like constipation issues. Right. I feel like that is so rude. I take it so personally <laughs> when people hate on prunes. I'm like, these are delicious and readily affordable at your local grocery store or even like the AMPM or CBS. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You'll get some prunes. I mean, don't have too many, but right. they're amazing. <laughs> if you're under 65 and you say, I love prunes on a first date, you're that done. Is, I feel like that's the biggest flag. So I've just learned to hide my <laughs> love of prunes. I'm like, no, no, you're not getting us till at least date that's, four. No, right. Apparently it's extraordinarily <laughs> sensitive. I'm going to list a bunch of reality TV shows. Okay. I'd like you to put each one into one of three categories. Okay. It's trash, but it's a great watch. It's trash, but it's trash. <laughs> There's okay. nothing redeeming about it. Or it's like a legit good show. Okay. The Bachelor franchise. Trash, but good for the memes. Okay. I mean, it's just, it's delivered such high quality memes. There's, mm-hmm. there's the one about the, the bride who's, who's just like standing there waiting for her man to be in it. It is not to be the case. I'm like, iconic. So trash, but good for the vibe. Real Housewives, the franchise. Oh my God. Legit. So legit. I'm obsessed. I'm so obsessed. So I've, I've, to be fair to the audience, I've only seen uh, Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. But I've heard um, that that's not even like among the good ones. Oh my God. No, it is among the best ones. It is, it okay. is, it is so difficult hmm. to describe the level of chicanery and nonsense and illegality and uh-huh. just the crazy things that go on that TV show. If you have nothing better to do and you're yeah. perfectly okay with watching a show that's going to get you riled up and you're very quickly going to pick sides and like, I like her, but I don't like her. <laughs> watch Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. It's on okay. Bravo. It's incredible. Okay especially season two. I'm not going to give it away, but illegal things happen. So it's, <laughs> it's amazing. Survivor. Incredible. That's legit. I grew up on Survivor. For me, it is the canonical reality television show. I know it's not the first reality TV show. It, it definitely uh, is predated by things like the real world, but it was just so shockingly different from anything that had been on television up to that point. Okay. America's next top model. Just trash. Just trash. I, I, so I did not grow up with it. Mm-hmm. I have certainly been an adult in the era of let's reflect on what actually happened on the show, mm-hmm. the trauma that Tyra put these contestants through, the completely unnecessary, very personal attacks, the critiques of their looks, of their poses, yeah, the unfair editing to the contestants, and the let's just put these women through the ropes for no good reason and make them feel like shit. So, trash. Trash. Keeping up with the Kardashians. Oh, trash. Full trash. trash. There's okay. nothing redeeming. Mm-hmm. They do have interesting meme quality. I will give them like a f- <laughs> three out of 10 on meme potential. <laughs> mm-hmm. But on the whole, I think keeping, keeping up with the Kardashians has been a stain on our already stained historical, social, cultural legacy. So, nope. I, trash. I just trash. Big brother. Uh, oh, incredible. Jersey Shore. Hmm. <laughs> I never watched it, 
but okay. I saw so much of its content. I want to say it's perfect. It's incredible. It's camp. I feel like I might get canceled for saying that, but <laughs> I'm going to stick to my guns and say it's perfectly fine. Queer Eye. Uh, I think on the whole, good. I think it okay. introduced the American public to real gay people and what they were really like. So I do appreciate the overall attempt to introduce the world to hygiene mm-hmm. and <laughs> just like clothes of the mm-hmm. decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Top Chef. Uh, obsessed with Top Chef. Obsessed with Master Chef. Obsessed with all cooking related. Yeah. Cooking related reality TV shows. Gordon Ramsay. It was what he was meant to do. Especially the like the top version of Master Chef, where it's like a five-year-old cooking you a souffle. Fucking live with that. It's so cute. I adore that. You're so adorable. I think he's super hot. I think that is the correct opinion. 20-ish, 15 years ago. I mean, he's a ginger, so that gives him a billion extra bonus <laughs> points in my universe. He's very intense, though. I mean, I've seen yeah. I've seen him cooking just like uh, tomatoes. And right. I, I, I don't know. It gets me really excited. I'm like, oh, my God, I don't cook tomatoes that way. I've been doing it wrong all my life. Okay, last one. Great British baking show. Adore. 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 Incredible. There should be more, more, more. They have somehow figured out the formula to make baking which at its heart, like after you mix the thing, there's nothing to do. You're just sitting there. You're just looking at your oven. You can't do anything. There's no more prep. Yeah. You're just waiting at you're just waiting at your cute little oven. They're just crouching and looking in. Yeah, looking at the door for 20 <laughs> minutes, right? They've made they somehow cracked the formula to made to still make it an incredibly compelling human-centered show. Incredible. Fausto, this was so much fun. And it is <laughs> it has just been like, first of all, I kept you for <laughs> you did. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's fine. I mean, I had a great time, and I hope that we can meet in person and yes. SCR. Yes. Not to be their evangelist, but June 14th through the 17th in Chicago. <laughs> Everybody come. Let's have a party. Let's- you are welcome to dress as Goku or anything else, whether you are presenting or not. I personally will always be there to give you a standing ovation. <laughs> Yeah, it's so comforting to watch, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's like uh, Zoloft. Just <laughs> <laughs> if Zoloft could be an old British woman telling you about your tarts, <laughs> it would be that. <laughs>